Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. On this episode of Big Boys Don't Cry, we discuss the film Elizabeth Town. You don't have to have seen the film to enjoy the podcast, but it may improve your enjoyment of the podcast if you have seen it. If you do proceed, just be aware that there are some light plot spoilers for the film Elizabeth Town. Enjoy. Hello there. Your good internet. Your internet's working. It is, yes. Yay. Yeah, we actually have internet now. Whoop whoop. What happened? Yeah. Um basically it sounds like there was some kind of big old issue with uh with BT and the exchange box. And so we we lost our internet, which was fantastic. BT in the exchange box. That's my favourite 60s funk group. <laughs> it's it's my favourite Harry Potter novel, Harry Potter in the BT exchange box. <laughs> that would be tedious, but good. <laughs> oh dear, how are you, man? You alright? Yeah, I'm alright. I'm alright. Two days back at work now, so yeah, I'm I'm settling in. I was, you know, absolutely dreading going back to work, but it actually hasn't been too bad. Or people did manage to do stuff while I was away. I didn't come back to as big a mountain of work to do as I was expecting. I managed to get on top of things. Yeah, it's all right. How about you? How's your week going? Oh, my week is is going swell. I am loving my my boring, boring, boring job. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Work is just great, isn't it? You know, going into an it office I and mean, having your temperature regulated, you know, it's the final what, thing what's, in what's life. What's great about our office, what's great about our office is that none of that stuff actually works. Oh, no. um, so most most days I have to wear my jacket in the summer because we are right under one of the vents for the uh, climate control. And at the moment it's decided that it just needs to pump out freezing air constantly. So I walk into work in a t-shirt because it's so warm outside. And then when I'm in work, I have to wear a jacket. Um, And it does the opposite in the winter so that it's completely boiling hot in the winter. Um, It's, it's amazing. Our office, Um, the the toilets often break. The lifts are constantly breaking down with people inside them. Oh Um, no, that happened to me once. It's, it's, Oh, really? Did it? Yeah, in our old office. I was in there for about an hour, I think, um, with just one other guy who worked on my floor. So that was okay. You know, you press the thing, it goes through to some some bored guy who's probably like sitting in a sitting in a booth eating donuts, and he calls the office the, <laughs> the fixing people. And he's like, "Yeah, they'll be there in half an hour. Takes them an hour." But the scariest part was that like it it didn't just stop. Like there was a big bang and then it kind of dropped about a floor and that was absolutely terrifying but then it's oh god that's awful yeah but yeah it wasn't so bad got to miss some work i um i only got stuck in a lift once and um it wasn't at my office because i now take the stairs that's what i do 
um i see no point in getting stuck in a lift yeah partly because i'm incredibly worried about getting stuck in it with somebody like if i'm there on my own i think i'll be fine because i'll just be like oh i've got my phone i've got some headphones yeah have a little sing song i'll just i'll just yeah you know i'll just be there singing walking on sunshine while the attractive firemen come and get me out (laughs) um don't it feel good um but but the one time i did get The one, the one time I did get stuck in a lift was when I was working at uh, Gatwick Airport. Um, I had a summer job helping people with reduced mobility through the airport. So I helping remember. people in wheelchairs get to their flights and things like that. Um, and to get anywhere, there's lots and lots of security clearances that you need, um, including using swipe cards. And what happened was I was in the lift going down to the um, uh, to the term, to the uh, gate to get this person from their flight. Um, however, someone who was down on the runway used the lift, and so it took me all the way down to the bottom. They got off on a different floor, but then my security card did not get me out of the number of floors that I was stuck in. Oh, so I couldn't no. go anywhere. I was too low down for my security clearance, basically. And so I was stuck there until another random person used the lift. Oh, shit. Security clearance was, nightmare. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was like I, I'd somehow gone over my threshold of security through no fault of my own, and then uh, I couldn't escape. That sounds like so I knew too much. The beginning of a Philip K. Dick book. <laughs> it really does, doesn't it? He finds um, a load of uh, his co-workers have taken off their faces, and underneath there's just all this circuitry. And I was like, "You can't get out now. You'll have to become one of us." Yeah. And then all of the the bad robots, it turns out that they're the reason that British Airways has gone downhill. Yeah, because now it's um, Bionic Airways. Bionic Airways. That would probably be better. It just everything would be automated, I guess. Depends whether the automatons or the the Bionic robot people, you know, demanded better terms and conditions or whatever. Whether they reached that point of sentience and awareness. can they also, would a robot be able to give you that soothing captain voice when you've got turbulence? Hmm. Probably not. Yeah, you you want to be reassured mm. by the captain. You want him to sound like he's a real person. On one of the um, like intra-island flights um, in Hawaii, the captain like came out of the, of the cockpit just before he took off and kind of said hi to everyone and was all being like, hey guys, you're in good hands. And he was like a sort of handsome movie pilot. That was that was quite nice. <laughs> it was very reassuring. Actually, I bet that must have been quite nice. Yeah, because the planes, the intra-island planes, are kind of rickety. They're the ones with the propellers on, and you you, you feel the you feel the wind, should we say? Not yeah. just from me. Um. <laughs> Not just the Johnston wind. No. The, w- one of my um, one one of my favorite shows ever is Monkey Dust, and I think we've watched oh, Monkey Dust together, haven't we? We have. Yeah, that is a great, very underrated, um, and I think very misunderstood show. Yeah, it's it's one of the darkest comedies I think I've ever seen. Um, it's an it's an animated show from various different animators that was on the BBC for only three series. Um, and I recommend anybody who's not heard of Monkey Dust go on YouTube and ser- search for it because it 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 kind of tapped into that early 2000s sense of nihilism and depression that sort of swept across the UK. And it did it in an incredibly biting Mm. way that kind of was similar to what Chris Morris and Charlie Brooker were doing. And in the same way as those two, it served to be, um, it it gets more true 
as the years go by. So I went back and rewatched Monkey Dust a couple of years ago and like everything that they pointed out in there, it's just like, oh my God, it's all coming true to an extent. And it's it's really funny the way it did it. Um, and in one of its more lighthearted sketches, they're at this um, pilot's training course. And um, it's these two two sort of instructors that are, are there. And they're talking to this candidate who's like, well, you you aced the landing, you, you aced the uh, dangerous flying section um by our simulations you would have saved all the passengers but unfortunately we're gonna have to let you go and then it turns around to the guy uh the, the pilot and he's like but why will you let me go <laughs> and the answer is oh sorry but your voice they want a they want a a pilot with confidence you know we're gonna have to let you go we can't we can't have a pilot with that voice and then it goes on to the next candidate who's this guy who kind of looks like the elephant man um apart from he's got two hook hands um and uh they're like all right mr jennings um so we uh we ran your simulations and uh, it's not good uh you would have lost all all of the passengers on your flight and then uh, it cuts back to the pilot and he's he's like uh well you know we we uh, had a little spot of bother there um but we got through the worst of it okay and now we're setting <laughs> off to our destination and the, the answer is just like well welcome aboard when can you start <laughs> yeah um, let's just think like it's uh yeah it, it must be a prerequisite surely to be a pilot you you have to have a a uh, a good voice smooth voice so there's a there's a guy um who is in our year at school who apparently now is a commercial pilot who had a very very he had a real unfortunate baby voice which he was unfortunately mocked for and it was very unfair but you know that's a voice that i think you wouldn't want over the over the intercom a voice that sounds like a like a 5 year old maybe you would i don't know toddler airways i I'd, I'd i'd totally fly toddler airways if it was cheap <laughs> yeah exactly you know paying apple juice yeah your flight <laughs> monkey dust um it's a really interesting show because it's incredibly nihilistic but it's all pre-credit crunch pre it's all prior to the kind of horrible neoliberal neo-nazi fascist crisis that we're living through at the moment it just seems the time say 2006 is so far removed from that but so close to it as well and i guess you could see the threads of where it was all going but it reflects the concerns of the time which is so different rather than being economic it's all everyone from through the 90s and the 2000s was terrified about pedophiles and then loads of the sketches are about pedophiles it's all stuff like that it's a really it's a very interesting actual kind of animated comedy artifact but my favourite is the guy yeah. who gets home from a business trip to his wife and then describes a really long, elaborate scenario. Um, and then she's like, Clive, that's the plot of The Lord of the Rings. Where have you really been? <laughs> that was my favourite. Yeah. And and his answers are always, always some of the most horrible things you could ever hear. Yeah. As um, he hangs his head in shame. So, yes, yeah, so it's like... Um, Yes, it's like Clive. No, that that's the plot to to June, which was so disappointingly brought to the screen by David Lynch. <laughs> what have you really been doing? And the answer is just like uh, I've I've been an anal gimp in a Japanese strip club or something like that. Yeah, good times. Oh, so this week's Especially film. For him. Yeah, yeah. At least you you felt like he was enjoying it a little bit, like he was getting some pleasure from it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so this week's film, Elizabethtown. I watched it last night instead of watching the new Bake Off. Did you watch the new Bake Off? I did. How was it? It's all right. 
I'm probably not going to get into it, so you can you can spoil it for me. Um, it's fine. Um, it feels weird. The most fun you can have with it is booing whenever Paul Hollywood's on screen and calling him a traitor, <laughs> um, which we got a lot of love out of. Um, it it's it's weird. Um, you mean because Guy Fieri. they've kind <laughs> the Yorkshire pudding Guy Fieri. <laughs> Yeah, um, no, he's the he's the villain in the Sensations video game, you know, like Metal Sonic. Yeah, it's, 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 yeah. <laughs> he's Meta Knight to Guy Fieri's Kirby. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. It's weird um, because although now everything has changed, apart from Paul Hollywood, the script still feels the same as what it was for the old presenters. So you've got Noel Fielding doing very. Um, uh, very Mel and Sue style jokes and it feels really off um, it feels very strange indeed and they haven't really played on at least so far they aren't really playing on the dynamics of um, Noel Fielding and Sandy Toxvig at all Right. and they're kind of just sitting in their same sort of vaguely present, pleasant presenters and I was I was thinking about this the, today um, after watching it's like what would have made this better and I realised that Bake Off on Channel 4 could have worked really well if they'd managed to get Noel Fielding and Julian Barrett to be the presenters yeah, and basically allowed them to play play off each other as they do on the various other projects that they work on together or do it with David Mitchell and Robert Webb or something like that. Mm, yeah, you need a, you need um, a double act. Which, which would, yeah, yeah, because at the moment, Toxfig and Fielding doesn't really work. Um, but apart from that, <laughs> that it just sounds kind like of feels an antique like, store. Yeah, Toxfig and Fielding. Um, and and yeah, so uh, eh, it's fine. I don't know if I'm going to continue watching it. I I paused halfway through Blade Runner to watch it, and I regret doing that. And wish oh, I'd watched no. all Blade Runner instead. Um, but it's it's fine. It's you know, it's a show about baking. It they is what stuff. It, it is what it good. is. It's it's the apex of British culture. Yeah, it's it, it's 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 post Brexit Britain at its core. Yeah. trying to make the most of a bad situation <laughs> yeah i'm I'm still salty about the fact that i applied to be on it like four years ago and didn't get on we should we should form our own show i was talking to someone at work today and said that um we were saying that uh, mel and sue and mary berry should do their own show called uh the uk's cake off <laughs> um and just show it on the on the bbc um, and yeah, we should get you on it. We we should be the contestants, you and me. I would be very. And you can just that. trounce me every week. Bake boys don't cry. Bake boys don't cry because I'm a, I'm a decent baker. I'm all right at baking. Yeah, I but reckon you you are probably, excellent. Probably a dark horse. See, I I have a reputation as a good baker, but it's probably unfounded. I think it's it's based on a couple of lucky lucky streaks. I make very good cupcakes, is my thing, mm-hmm. and I make the odd good French cheesy pastry but um a lot of the time i'm not very good with following instructions or precision in my cooking so like i'm quite a good cook but my cooking is primarily going with my gut instinct about what's going to work and what's not going to work and most of the time it works out fine but i think that put into a a a baking situation a stressful baking situation wouldn't necessarily go down all that well yeah, the quantities of things like baking powder and bicarb and like rising agents and stuff, those are all, you have to get those dead right, otherwise you suddenly got this cake that's rising everywhere 
or that sort of sag- sagging lumpenly and sadly in the middle then yeah you've got to be careful <laughs> with that stuff and you know a pinch of salt has got to be just a pinch but i reckon most people probably yeah. go for a m- more than a pinch you know i know i do i'm a double pincher like a crab i go i go i go for a punch of salt <laughs> just i just smash a a salt shaker over what i'm baking and so then you get the shards of glass in as well and that's what i'd cook for poor hollywood that's why i got so sick after eating that cake you brought me <laughs> i call it the fuck you poor hollywood cake <laughs> no i don't feel sorry for poor hollywood i don't either splitter who leaves the bbc come on yeah well, Channel Channel Four is kind of it's the young and hip cousin, isn't it? Yeah, uh, and old Paul Hollywood, he wants to be young and hip, doesn't he? Yeah. Have you seen that photo of him in his in his biker leathers? He rides a he rides a bike. <laughs> I have not, but I want to see it now. Find it, and the, it's the the caption is um it's to the tune of um oh, what. What's the the Bee Gees song? It says, "Well, you can tell by the way I walk. I'm a I'm a butter man. No time for stalk." <laughs> I don't know who came up with it, but it is it is genius. I didn't do my falsetto there, even though I was tempted. It's been a long day. I got up at um, quarter to six and went for a run. I'm uh, I'm doing a half marathon oh, in twelve weeks, so. Oh, amazing. Maybe that's quite a good kind of post-wedding project, you know, and I wanted to get fit. I thought it was good to have something to work towards, a proper training plan and stuff. So, yeah, getting up early to run around the block in the rain. That's really good, man. Yeah, I get up early in the mornings and do a, do a workout at the moment. I'm aiming to be in, in proper sexy bikini uh, quality body um, by the end of the year. Just in time, Just for, in time Christmas. for Christmas jumpers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Just in time for the the sexy Santa season. I'm going to be wearing um my knitted uh my knitted short shorts with with reindeers on. Um and I'm going to be showing off my six pack. Um and being all like uh it's not only Santa that can tell you if I've been naughty or nice. <laughs> I cannot wait to see that. We'll use that as the podcast artwork. <laughs> That'll be the podcast artwork for all time. Yeah. Um, disclaimer, everybody, that's not going to happen. Nobody wants to see me with my shirt off. Even when I'm in shape, it's the kind of thing that causes people's... If anyone's seen the Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know what happens at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark? That's what happens when I get undressed, if anybody's around. What not what um, happens that the Nazis get defeated? Maybe you need to go to, um, like, in America, where all those, like, formerly alt-right now neo-Nazis are... are hanging out and having their rallies and just take your shirt off and then they'll all disintegrate. Are you suggesting I should do a sexy dance for Richard Spencer and Milo Yiannopoulos? Yes. Yes. And Donald Trump. He's one of them. Right. And Donald Trump. Yeah. I think I think he'd love a I think he'd love a sexy dance from me. Old he Trumpy. Would. He'd enjoy it just that little bit too much. It's beautiful, he said. Oh it's beautiful. I wear some boxes with his face on. <laughs> with on the on the on the ass, so that like his mouth lines up exactly with where your anus would be. Yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> I'll just I'll just turn around after it's done and say it's a metaphor, Donald, a metaphor for you. He really is the worst. He is a fucking waste of skin. <laughs> he does have a lot of skin, though. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. Like, there's too much of it. Where's it? Where did it all come from? <laughs> if anyone knows, please get in touch. It's it's a mystery. Yeah, please... I've been pondering for some time. <laughs> please, um, yeah, please get in touch if you know where Donald Trump got all of his skin. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's probably some conspiracy theory about that, like what he's hiding under that skin. But yeah, we don't want to get into the into that <laughs> now. <laughs> What we do need to do. So, so Elizabeth about... Town. <laughs> Elizabeth Town. Oh, this film. Yeah, I watched it last night instead of watching the Bake Off. I was pretty tired, but it was good. I um, I hadn't seen it in probably yeah about seven years or more because um, it's one of my wife's favorite films. And when we started going out, we watched it quite early on. Um, and I remember enjoying it at the time, but this time around, I didn't quite enjoy it as much. How about you? Yeah, so I watched it. Um, I watched it a couple of years ago. Um, again, um, it's been one of my favorite films since university. Um, and um, I, I still enjoyed it nearly as much as I did a couple of years back. I still, I considered it one of my favorite movies um, of of that kind of film, that kind of romantic slash family focused sort of homecoming movies and you know there's that very sort of niche subgenre that kind of ticks those boxes yeah um and i still consider it one of if not my favorite film of that ilk um but there's a couple of things this time around which um which kind of caused issues for me yeah um, which i'll talk about later on yeah i um I, f- I feel like, and Claire actually agreed with me as well. I think she used to really like it. And now watching it again, there were a lot of parts where we were kind of, um, we were sort of cringing a little bit or going, that's a bit weird or whatever. I think it's a really interesting film because it starts really well and ends really well, but it really sags in the middle, sort of like a cake without enough rising agent. You know, it's, um, yeah, I love the way it, it starts um with him and Alec Baldwin and all the thing kind of talking about failure and the shoes and stuff. That's all sort of quite funny and quite relatable. And then there's the um the well known scene where he's he tries to kill himself by strapping the knife to the the exercise bike and then it falls off and then the phone rings, which is all it's all very, very effective and painting a very, very good picture of the um the thoughts that are going through the character's mind and stuff. And then but once he once he gets back to the once once Kirsten Dunst's character enters, even though I think she's a wonderful actress and it's a really good performance, um, although there are obviously a lot of well known um, issues with the character and the and the writing of it. Once that that plot starts, I feel I feel I feel like that plot I felt like that plot was kind of at odds with the plot of him trying to sort out his dad's funeral and trying to sort out the cremation and the wishes of the family. There's like the the romantic plot with her and then there was kind of the plot with his family and I felt like the two plots didn't quite match up or didn't they and every time you felt like the romantic plot was going somewhere it's like suddenly we're supposed to be caring about um 
kind of about urns or about some some weird relative or something and it's like oh well i don't care about that i want to know about the romance you know but then at the end when it gets to um what as soon as she she gives him the map basically and then the last few scenes where he's following this amazing map and mixtape thing that she's made for him and eventually leads him to her i love that sequence i think that's like really romantic and fun and it's kind of cheesy and kind of kitschy but i i like it because the music's so good for one thing but yes i like those two things but i think in the middle i think i don't know really it just didn't it didn't do it for me at all this time around what do you reckon to that see i i'm i i'm not as critical of it as you in terms of it sort of making it a lesser experience but i i did i did think watching it and i've always thought this whenever i've watched it that it does feel almost like it's two movies fighting for dominance in just a single film um so for me at least my my preference in this movie is very much for the homecoming acceptance of family side of things the focus on the father's funeral um and i find that's the most compelling aspect of the movie Mm. um but at the same time you have this and i i still think it's a really wonderful romance film here between between claire and drew i think there's a lot of chemistry i think they're two very good characters um and i think it nearly makes it in terms of joining up what their romance is about with what the overall themes of the film are about and it's nearly there it's very very close and it's a very difficult thing to combine something like a traditional romance and something that's almost like a kind of mumblecore family-centric film um, into one package Mm. and it nearly makes it it's so close to fully integrating these two clashing plot ideas into one but it just falls short a tiny bit and i think that comes down to character decisions which don't necessarily align with what the character's motivations are in order to prolong both sides of the story for a little bit longer. Mm. Yeah, I, I think I would agree with that. It's it's just over two hours long. Like when you get to the bit with the map, you feel like it's over. The film feels like it's over because the um the ending of the, the father family acceptance plot is just brilliant, actually. It's so good. Um, like they have the funeral <laughs> and then the band Ruckus plays <laughs> Freebird. It's um, Paul Schneider on drums, who I really, really like. He's no relation to Rob Schneider, of course. Um, he's a really, really <laughs> good actor who's in um, Parks and Recreation in the early seasons. Um, he's in Away We Go, which is one of my favourite films. He's had a lot of quite small but really good roles. And the rest of the band is the band My Morning Jacket. Did you know that? Yeah, yeah. It's excellent, yeah, I did excellent that. band. Um, and <laughs> the, the um, I'm laughing just thinking about it. That the like paper bird comes down and sets on fire, and they carry on playing. I think that that scene is absolute genius. And Susan Sarandon's monologue before um, like talking about her husband, which actually goes on for like a really long time. Um, her her speech that's that is so utterly compelling, and that bit ties it up. And it, at that point, it feels like the film is over. But then they haven't resolved the romantic plots here. Like, oh, geez, another 15 minutes. Maybe it was just because it was past my bedtime. But yeah, I know what you mean. I feel like there was a lot of prolonging things and a lot of a lot of fluff that didn't need to be there, especially with the, yeah, between the two characters, Claire and Drew. And I find it's a real shame because I really love every sing- like every scene in this movie. There's no point in this film where I think, oh, I wish that scene wasn't in there. Um, all the way through the film, I'm enjoying myself. Um, but there are just these moments where you're like, it doesn't quite gel right. 
Um, and yeah, it's and I know exactly what you mean about the the end because the end of the family is so great, um, and it resolves everything. And like they, he's managed to align the ideals of the close family and the extended family and friends. And you're just like, okay, that's perfect. It's great that he's managed these two completely opposite sides of the spectrum of who who this person is. Um, he's managed to managed to get them to to join up and do something together and to enjoy each other's company in spite of the ongoing history between them all. Um, and you're like, yes, he's managed to achieve this in the face of failure. He has managed to pull out a much more important success in that this is the memory of his father. Um, and he's managed to to bring it to its conclusion happily. Um, but then you do after that get this. And I love the end of the film. I love the road trip. Um, it's something that I just think like this is a great idea for a romantic movie. It's a great idea for romance in general. Um, and so um, I do really enjoy that, but it does kind of feel like, oh, so this film basically has two endings. They they didn't find a way to sort of like properly bring together both at the same time. Yeah. Um, and, and again, it ne- it nearly makes it there because it is his chance to say goodbye to his dad. And so there is that link there, but it isn't quite perfect and and this kind of movie it's a very ambitious film and it needs perfection because any kind of flaw would be picked up on very quickly and it's not quite perfect and that's sort of like it's downfall yeah that's that's a good way to put it actually and i I feel like it probably from what i know of its critical reception that that was exactly how it went um people thought that um cameron crowe was trying to do and trying to say far too much and didn't quite make it um, and I think people expected him to be able to make it because at this point in his career, he's made a lot of really good and well-received films. Um, in fact, I think this is the first time we've repeated a director in our talking about films, isn't it? Because we talked about Say Anything. I think so, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it, it was interesting. I was sort of vaguely in the back of my mind comparing it to Say Anything just as as his kind of early work, you know, like comparing a band's really early album from the 80s to their album, you know, 10, 20 years later. Um, but it... It dealt. It didn't deal with. I mean, say anything was a film about intimacy, and um, Elizabeth Town was also a film about intimacy, but um, it was about familial intimacy in which the the problems of the familial in- intimacy I felt were underdeveloped. Although the resolutions to them came well, they didn't feel as good as they could have done because every every time you felt like you were getting somewhere with one of the scenes with the family, suddenly it's back to the romantic plot, and the romantic plot was kind of a little bit cheap and a little bit cheesy and but I also didn't believe his performance like it was I think a lot of the problem for me actually comes from Orlando Bloom is I just I still I found him to be quite a bland and wooden actor and I think I was more forgiving the first time around but I remember thinking I think when it first came out I didn't watch it because I was like oh he's that he's that fop from Pirates of the Caribbean he's that Pontiff Lord of the Rings like I think he was great as as an elf in Lord of the Rings but I I just thought he was another handsome handsome douchebag who couldn't really act and in a way I felt like that opinion was slightly vindicated by this film because I found his performance just really I I, yeah I, I couldn't really get behind it at all I didn't I didn't buy it I didn't buy him I felt like it was a very insincere performance and I think maybe that's just his style or something in me where I just don't like him. Sometimes he just don't like people, but I, I couldn't get behind it. Although I spent the whole time try, then trying to think of someone who I thought could have done it better. 
And the only person they came up with was the guy who played Prentice in Cloudburst, who I think would have done an amazing <laughs> job. He he would have been great, old Prentice, actually. Um, I I disagree with you on this. I think there's lots of parts of this movie which I feel are very unfairly criticised. And I think Orlando Bloom is one of them. Um, because a lot of people say that he's insincere, that he's drab, that he's he's not a an engaging actor in this film but i don't feel as though that's supposed to be his role i think at the beginning you're supposed to see him as this dismissive figure because that's what he is he's been brought up with this suspicion about the family down in louisville down in elizabeth town um and so when he arrives there he's got this mixture of trying to appease people um and so doing the formalities like he says my condolences to everybody and things like that um but also not trusting any of them very much and so that's where this kind of like quite dismissive nature comes from i think um and it's the same way that he he is initially with claire in the film as well um so i think it's a bit more of a nuanced performance than people necessarily give him credit for and i think at the beginning of the film you're supposed to not like him um, and you're supposed to warm to him as he warms to other people. And as he becomes more developed over the course of the film, I think you're supposed to develop alongside him. Um, so it's kind of like the opposite of... Um, what's the name of that? Uh, of Ruby Sparks. Have you seen Ruby Sparks? Yeah, I was actually just thinking that I, I think Paul Dano would have given a much better performance in this role. Um, yeah, I really like that film and it's on the list. So I want us to talk about it at some point if paul dano is in this film i would have been much more dismissive of the movie overall because i i want to slap his face and that's that's the one thing i get whenever i see him on screen i'm just like oh man your face is it's gotta gotta have a bit of a slap mate what 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 was your beef I, i'm i'm it's amazed just, by it. i'm pulled by it i think he's a brilliant actor and i love him i i think he's a brilliant actor as well and he's been in a load of my favorite movies so he's in ruby sparks he's in prisoners he's in little miss sunshine um He's in. Uh, he he gets his milkshake drunk <laughs> by uh, by Daniel Day Lewis, and I love and I love his performances in all of them. But there's just something about him which I don't trust. He has he, got a he, weird. Face. He's got a face. He's got a face that I don't trust. I feel like he he'd kick my dog when I wasn't looking. <laughs> That's what I feel about Paul Dano. Yeah. Did you see the uh, the BBC adaptation of War and Peace? I think it was on last year. Yeah, yeah, I watched that. He was good in that he as well. He was very good in that. Um, he's, he's, There's a bit where he went, I challenge he's you. He's a good actor. <laughs> he's, a, he's, he's, a, he's a good actor. I do like him a lot as an actor, but there's something I don't like about his face. Whereas there's something I like about Orlando Bloom's face. Orlando yeah. Bloom has the face of a cheeky chappy who you want to go hang out with. I don't like his face at um, all. This is this is where we found a dividing line, but I feel like it's, it's a definite prejudice on my part. And I think he was a kind of poster when we were in our teens and like Pirates and Lord of the Rings were popular. He was a pinup for for teenage girls. And I, I was jealous of his good looks. And I honestly don't. I think that is ingrained in me now. Like that, he would just have to work so much harder than he's ever worked to prove to me that he's not that guy, you know, and he hasn't managed it. Oh, okay. So okay. pull your finger um, out, Orlando. See, see, for me, like obviously he was like the poster boy of Lord of the Rings, but there's only there's only one dreamboat in the Lord of the Rings series, 
and that's Viggo Mortensen. Oh yeah, yeah. See, like, I, I, I love Viggo Mortensen. I'm Aragorn. very much behind him. Swarthy, swarthy A- gentleman. Aragorn gets my heart to flutter. He's yeah. he's the he's the king in every sense of the word. Um Elvis. But yeah, no, I've I I've always enjoyed um Orlando Bloom's performances. I think he's a he's an actor which he's able to poke fun at himself. He's tried lots of different things. Um and I think he gets a lot of hate which he doesn't necessarily deserve. Um which I feel very bad for him for. But at the same time I don't feel too bad for him because he's incredibly rich and successful. Yeah. He's rich and, and successful, generally popular, and popular. But at the same time, yeah, I think I think my criticism of him and the criticism of others is a little bit unfair, um, and comes from a probably prejudicial and unfounded place. But I I looked at his filmography and I realised there there weren't that many films. Like he hasn't actually done that many films for an actor of his age, and I had hardly seen any of them, so I probably can't really judge him. The one thing that I love. Uh, that he's been in is uh, the uh, Three Musketeers movie that was made back in the, I think it was like 2010 or something like that. Um, It's directed by the guy who did the Resident Evil movies. And it's it's so stupid. We've talked about that guy before. Yeah, we have. The old uh, Paul, the the other Paul Anderson. That's right. Paul W.S. Anderson. Um. And uh, and Orlando Bloom, he plays the Duke of Buckingham, and he he just randomly turns up in a bloody airship. It's great. He just it, and his performance is just so tongue in cheek and brilliant. And I I really enjoy that movie. It's it's deliberately stupid, and like totally worth watching if you want a really mindless action movie and you don't mind the fact that they've completely demolished a quite established subject matter. Nothing wrong with that. Um. Yeah, and, and and yeah, and like that's what I like about Orlando Bloom is like he can do films with lots of artistic merit, like Elizabeth Town or like Haven or Kingdom of Heaven. Um, and he can also poke fun at himself, and he can also do the big budget action movies. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and he he can yeah he's he's got everything. He's he's handsome. He's named after a nice place <laughs> in Florida. <laughs> I keep forgetting um, that he's yeah. English um, as well. Yes, and he is English, and doesn't do an awful American accent. Can no. I say that? I don't think his accent's awful. That was the one bit of his performance that I was convinced by. Um, but but in general, I think Elizabeth Town is a movie which was unfairly criticised at the time. Um, and you know that I've I've all, I've always, and I think I've mentioned it before. I have this fascination with box office bombs yeah yeah was it and i love and i it was it didn't make any money and the critics hated it um and it's one of those i'm always interested in looking at a movie and trying to pinpoint exactly where it went wrong yeah particularly if it's a film that i really enjoy and like so death to smoochie is a movie that i'm sure i've mentioned before yeah um that's a great film and it's quite easy to it is a great film and everybody should go out and watch death to smoochie it doesn't quite fit this podcast because it's not quite it's not romantic enough no. for us to watch it so outside of, it's not going to be an episode probably maybe if we do some like extra ones later on so After just go dark. out and watch death to smoochie fin- 
yeah, fin- finish listening to this podcast and then go and watch Death to Smoochie because you will not regret it. Um, but with Death to Smoochie, it's easy to see why people didn't quite get it. And it's easy to see why people didn't go and see it because it's a black comedy about gangsters in kids' TV. Yeah. Complete with loads and loads of really horrible jokes, but at the same time, including this slapstick dynamic. So it's a really unique film that a lot of people didn't get and the trailers made it out to look like something that it wasn't, which didn't necessarily get the audience in that it needed. Um, and so it's easy to see why that failed. Yeah, it's um, a wacky concept. But Elizabeth Town, Elizabeth Town, I don't really understand why critics didn't like it. And I definitely don't understand why people didn't go to see it because it's got two of the biggest names in Hollywood in a romantic comedy and it was it was very much focused as a romantic comedy in the um in in like the trailers and everything like that and everybody knows that audiences don't really listen to reviews before they go and see a film if it's got people in it that they want to go and see so i just found it weird that it it didn't succeed and i'm not really sure why And i mean i love it i don't agree with the negative reviews of it either Um, yeah i've never seen any just didn't like trailers or marketing or anything for it but maybe it wasn't done right with most of cameron crowe's other films did okay i guess not that it's people don't go and see a film because of the director but it's yeah it i guess in even in the trailers it's not gonna necessarily come across like a regular rom-com and maybe something about it just made it look boring to to your average film goer who enjoys a bit of Green Lantern 18 or whatever the fuck is going on in mainstream cinema, you know, like <laughs> Green Lantern 18. <laughs> um, you know, there, 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 there is unlikely to be a Green Lantern movie oh. in a while because they tried to make a Green Lantern film with Ryan Reynolds. Oh, and it was bad. And that it? was an absolute disaster. It made no money. It got terrible reviews. Um, so much so that it's not been made part of the DC cinematic universe. Ouch. Um, so I imagine that the Green Lantern might not be int- it might be introduced in the Justice League movie that's coming out if they've kept that secret. Um, but I imagine he probably won't be getting his own movie for a little while. They'll probably want to get an get another Batman movie in, get a, another Wonder Woman in, hmm. um, maybe get an Aquaman movie in first. Ryan Reynolds has got a big chin. Um, he does have a big chin, but it's always hidden quite well with angles and shadowing. in photos and on screen i reckon in real life it's actually like massive do you reckon in real life he walks around with a big scarf just to hide his chin (laughs) yeah like um have you seen that famous picture of lenny kravitz wearing a scarf that's like bigger than him (laughs) yes yeah it's like that it's just like that yeah maybe lenny kravitz (laughs) has also got a big chin this is like big chin Maybe theory. They... This is the new new hot conspiracy theory. This is the new thing. Yeah, big chin theory. Um, yeah, uh, I I love Ryan Reynolds though. I think he's really funny, particularly just his persona online. He's he's one of the few celebrities that's worth following on Twitter just for the humor behind it. Oh, I do, um, I do not. Follow so recently, him. so he he's married to Blake Lively, mm-hmm. and um, it was her birthday recently. And his Twitter update for on her birthday was, "I'd love, I'd like to to wish the love of my life a, a, a happy birthday, a, a wonderful birthday, or something like that." But then he posted a picture, and he'd cropped her off, so it was just a photo of him. <laughs> <laughs> it was just so funny. And okay, he does that. Good. He does that stuff all the time. 
he's he's very very funny and he's a very likable chap uh. um and yeah so so that's another recommendation go follow ryan reynolds on uh on uh on twitter yeah yeah we've got all um, your twitter follow needs covered yeah and and follow us because we're both great yep at big boys don't pod we need some more followers actually i promise we'll we'll up the if if more of you follow us we'll up the content there'll be puppies there'll be gifts you know that kind of thing so, so another thing about elizabeth town that bugged me about its reception was that this is the movie that coined the term manic pixie dream girl yeah i was going to ask you about that as you were saying that you you felt like a lot of the criticism against it was unfair um, i'm going to guess that you are anti the term manic manic pixie dream girl which has now become dated and the writer the person who coined it and everyone's now distanced from it it's now seen as a very kind of 2010 term to use when criticizing film and we have not used it on this podcast and i don't think that we would but i'm guessing you're anti it yeah because i think i don't know if we vaguely mentioned the idea in um our in our episode about 500 days of summer but that's another movie that's often criticized as the and I'm, I'm using yeah. air quotes here, which you won't be able to see as it's a podcast, the manic pixie dream girl thing. And I think it's kind of a, I think it makes more sense in some of the other movies that came out at the time, like 500 days of summer or garden state. Yeah. Um, which, which kind of, they had a very, they had very, very quirky female leads that kind of pushed this idea that, oh my god this girl is so mysterious and wacky and i don't understand her and that's why i love her um and like i don't think that that necessarily fits with elizabeth town no i think that that claire as a character is a much more nuanced character and a much more realistic character particularly than summer in 500 days of summer oh yeah a hundred percent yeah and so I think that criticism that's been aimed at this film, I think, is very unfair. There's only a couple of moments where I think that's a very unrealistic thing to do um, that's maybe just been put in there as contrived. And I think, like, her her potential boyfriend, potential made-up boyfriend, Ben, the yeah. way that there's that kind of thing going on, I think that's a little bit weird. But in general, I think, like, she's just a... It, it's absolutely fine to have two characters which are opposites in a romantic movie it's pretty much rule one of if you want two characters to have a compelling romantic relationship go down the route of opposites attract yeah and so you've got this incredibly uptight incredibly strict with his emotions orlando bloom in drew um and then you've got the much more flamboyant much more um rooted claire played by kirsten dunst and i think that's absolutely fine i don't really understand why people have problems with her character per se no i think it's less about the character itself and maybe more with the the framing of it which you you feel like this the the writing is trying to to provide something that saves the guy or it's it's always about how what the the kookiness and the the girl's personality does for the male lead and in this case i think because 
what she's trying to do for the male lead is get him to, I don't know, broaden his horizons or change his mind about his family or just kind of open up and see life differently and live life to the full and that kind of thing. Because you don't quite, or in my case, I didn't quite believe his character with her trying to do all that just then ends up feeling very, very forced, I guess. But also the the first time they meet on the plane, she's immediately like investing a lot of time in trying to, it's not like she's kind of creepily coming on to him, but she's like giving him all this info and talking to him and he's just being kind of monotonous back and you just think why the hell is she bothering what does what is what is it about this guy you know why does she even care and the whole time you just think why did why is she so interested in him and I guess that then goes the other way where it's like obviously you'd be interested in the manic pixie dream girl because she's so kooky and fun and then that's kind of a trope and yeah I don't know because I'm done (laughs) Oh, <laughs> do you not think though? Because I, I think that like the framework of of why is she interested? I think it's put there in front of you in that she's on a really boring flight with no one around apart from like one other per- passenger. Also, that never fucking so- happens. Like that that annoyed the hell out of me. Like there are <laughs> never that few people on a plane. I mean, maybe I'm just bitter about how every flight I get on seems to be full, but I never get fucking upgrade, even when I'm on my honeymoon. But, like, no flight is ever that empty. That does not happen. It, that just fucking well, doesn't I don't happen. Know, like, I don't know about internal flights between random parts of the United States. I've been on some very, very, very empty flights, actually, before, but I never fly on big planes like that, apart from when I'm going out to... Uh, on a long trip which very rarely happens but i've been on i've been on flights to france where it's only been about 10 people for instance so it always depends on the time of the flight um when in the year the flight is happening and things like that yeah um and so i can under- i i i reckon there are times where the flights are that empty particularly as it's hinted at the airline itself is not a very popular one obviously you you had in america around this time um, airlines being bailed out by the government as well. Mm. Um, so I think maybe it's got that kind of um, context around that airlines are failing. Hmm. I, okay, so I they, hadn't there must have been something going on. But also, no American um, Airlines flight is ever even half as comfortable as that. Like those, like huge ass <laughs> seats in economy. Like what? The, no plane looks like that. They must have made some kind of special plane. Sorry, I'm not going to keep banging on about it, but it irritated the hell out of me. <laughs> so, so I, I can think, I, I can think of many justifiable reasons why she would show an interest in this one passenger that she's got, who's a handsome guy. She's bored out of her mind and wants someone to talk to. So I can, I can understand that. I can understand why. I don't think there's anything dodgy about her her starting up this friendship with this random person on her flight i but think it's he's, just she's bored she he's not an engaging to. conversationalist at all and i feel like people people who are engaging like that and are have that kind of extroversion and want to talk to people um surely need a bit people to give a bit back in terms of the conversation and i thought that the scene where they're on the phone as well also bugged me in a similar way and claire was like rolling her eyes at it my wife, not the character in the film. Um, she was like rolling her eyes at it, especially after like the the dialogue um, stopped and it was just music and you could just hear them talking. And it's like, 
yeah, that that bit where she was saying a lot of things and he was just kind of agreeing with her over the phone and you're supposed to believe that they're having all this kind of wonderful conversation. But he's just like, he's monotone and boring throughout and I just didn't buy it. But then he sp- he sparks up this conversation with her, don't you think? He's not just there listening to what she's saying. They 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 get a they get a conversation going. Yeah, there, there's a conversation happening, but I wouldn't say that it's scintillating. Well, that's because they cut it off for music. But when you get the snippets of it, you can tell that there's this chemistry happening between them. I and like, as, I I've I've had that conversation. I've had that conversation it. before with people where where you you start falling for somebody. And then you speak with them, and you do speak with them until until the morning. Um, and so I, I I've I've witnessed that happen firsthand. Um, so I, I I can believe it. I can believe it. And I think like often in often when you have two people speaking, um, there is someone who's more dominant in the way that they talk, and then they they enjoy having that kind of relationship where they have someone who they can speak to who then offers sort of like reinforcement and things like that but isn't necessarily taking a dominant role in the conversation this is true i mean and i i generally i'm generally a phone hater i generally don't like talking on the phone i like talking to you for the podcast but yeah generally i i don't necessarily call people and talk that much yeah i i don't i i i speak with people i love like you yeah (laughs) save Um, save it for the uh, i hate yeah, I hate talking to people that I don't know on the phone and or people that I don't want to speak to. Yeah. Um that like for worst. me phone calls are like family and loved ones and close friends. That's who I don't mind speaking to on the telephone. Everyone else can can get out and send me an email. Get out. Yeah, so <laughs> you you buy their chemistry, I don't. I think that's that's kind of a, fund, a fundamental rift between us. And I think that that was the the fundamental problem for me that I couldn't get past. But there were still a lot of things that I really, really loved in this film and that I really enjoyed. And it still felt like a Cameron Crowe film to me and it still related to his other films in a good and pleasing way, at most especially in its use of music, which is, even though I, I only recognised about half of the songs, I felt every single bit of incidental music, everything that was chosen was like pitch perfect. I loved all of the music and I went and listened to the soundtrack today and it was really good. And yeah, so he has a real, real gift for that. And that kind of really rescued this this movie from being tedious because I still enjoyed watching it because there was so much else to get hold of other than Orlando Bloom's kind of woodenness. Yeah, yeah. The score of this film is really, really nice. Um it's it's yeah it's got loads and loads of incredible um incredible artists on it um you've got yeah like tom petty you've got elton john my morning jacket obviously um lindsey buckingham yeah um who's who's a who's a personal fave of mine i love a bit of lindsey yeah um that's the is a weird acoustic version of um big love from off of tango in the night Mm. And he's driving um, the car. it's and it's it's yeah it's it's a great score and again it's it is it is again Cameron Crowe using his skill set in terms of using music to convey a scene and convey emotions and it's done in a in a wonderful way. Yeah, so all of that worked really really well. I think Cameron Crowe 
this is probably his most ambitious film, although I don't know that I've seen much of his recent work, but it's probably his most ambitious film. He tried to do way too much and then, in my opinion, got a boring, monotonous wooden actor to try and execute it. And that's the, the fundamental problem, I think. But you still like you still feel like you want to applaud his effort because it's it's not Green Lantern eighteen. <laughs> See, for me, this is my favorite Cameron Crowe movie. The yeah. Cameron Crowe movies that I've seen, you think I like it's better it than when... say anything. Yeah, yeah, definitely wow. better than say anything. Interesting. No, I much prefer to say anything. I I like ambition in a movie. Like a movie is not. If you want to tell a small story, go make a fucking TV show. If you want to convey big ideas and try and do it quickly and with a massive punch, turn to movies. That's what movies are there for. A punch of salt. Um, and so like a punch of salt. <laughs> and so like, yeah, I love this film. Like I've I've not seen every every Cameron Crowe movie, but like I've seen like Jerry Maguire, I've seen Vanilla Sky, I've seen Say Anything. And like out of the ones that I've seen, this is easily my favorite. And because he's tried to, and he's nearly there. And I think it's a, I think it's great. Um, even though it, it still kind of fails. It's, it's, it's so close that you just, you just want to will it to succeed. And like, I know that we've got a, an issue with um, whether we think the lead is right. There's no one who I could consider taking on this role and doing a better job of it you're not allowing paul dano to come in come into not, that fold if paul dano was in this movie i'd have set it on fucking fire by now <laughs> i would have set cameron crow on fire get him the fuck out of my romantic movies i would like to see a remake of this film where paul dano plays every character and it's called dano town <laughs> can't we do one where arnold schwarzenegger plays every character <laughs> schwarzenegger town it's like, like a sort of being john malkovich yeah. situation yeah, exactly. Um, but but I, I think I think there's a quote from this movie that really that really kind of sums up what what it means. Um, and and in fact, there's a few because of one of the big themes of Elizabeth Town is failure. Um, and so like. It, the, the the issue of failure comes up time and time again and i suppose it's kind of an irony that this movie is now seen as this huge failure yeah when there's something sort of poetic the entire movie that, actually yeah that, so for people who haven't seen it um the start of the movie orlando bloom has designed this shoe called the spasmodica and it's supposed to be this this innovation in shoe design that's going to change the shape of shoe history um but it gets instantly recalled. It's a total fucking bomb. And he has cost his company $1 billion. Um, and he is going to be the scapegoat and as it, the designer. It's never clear exactly told, what was wrong with the shoe, is it? Was no, it but you look at design? it and it is one ugly shoe. It's yeah. an ugly shoe, isn't it? But you wonder, like, is it badly made? Is it causing, like, pain in people's feet that they're not used to whatever the random design is that they put into it? Um, yeah, it's never really explained, but but all you need to know is it is it has gone bad and it has cost them a billion dollars. Um, and Orlando Bloom is going to take the fall for it. Um, and so the issue of failure does come up quite a lot in the movie, and you've got lots of people, lots of different people giving their ideas about failure. Um, 
and so so like the first the first big quote about failure is something that drew says um as and he says there's a difference between a failure and a fiasco a failure is simply the non-present of success any fool can accomplish failure but a fiasco is a disaster of mythic proportions mm. a fiasco is a folk tale told to others that makes other people feel more alive because it didn't happen to them and you kind of wonder how many other um directors sort of looked at this and thought oh phew thank god that didn't happen to me yeah particularly particularly garden state is a movie that kind of does the same thing as this movie as, as elizabeth town and in my opinion is much more boring yeah. the characters are much less interesting the acting is much much worse good soundtrack yeah though. that movie kind of has this following it has an all right soundtrack i wouldn't say it's up to elizabeth town levels of soundtrack either i don't know man shins um, that's it's, cab it's, it's very it's, it's very mean it's, it's 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 fine it's it's a fine movie it and and that is a movie that doesn't have ambition. It doesn't have ambition on the same level as Elizabeth Town. No. And it shows, and I find it very boring because of it, because it's a it's a movie that has the same themes, but doesn't do anything anywhere near as grandiose with it. It's a Zach Braff vehicle. Um, and so I, yeah, it's it's Zach Braff being Zach Braff, but not having Turk to fall back on. To, yeah, to create some row comedy Turk was the um, one pulling the weight in that relationship and yes <laughs> and and uh and and so i think this about elizabeth town like the, elizabeth town is in the eyes of many a fiasco but at the same time it it is a spectacular failure um and like, there's this other quote from claire in the film um and and drew is is really sad he sort of talked about his failure and 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 she sort of says uh, oh you want to be really great then have the courage to fail big and stick around mm. make them wonder why you're still smiling that's true greatness to me yeah um and like so so there's all these different things in this movie that kind of fits into the themes uh, into the sort of like the context of what actually happened to the film and i find that really interesting and like I hope that Cameron Crowe took some of the messages of his biggest failure to heart in a way, because it is, it's a movie that is a spectacular failure, but at the same time, it has a lot of love and it has this cult following. And there's so much to love about this film that you just think it's a shame that he's never really done anything with the same level of ambition since and you hope that at some point he'll be able to turn back to it and and try and do something this spectacular again yeah but at least he has stuck around like he has continued to to make films i guess he didn't have one and then just just like one failure and then just disappear and i agree with that and i'm i'm fascinated by failure as well i think as you know i'm a i'm a huge baseball fan and i think that's a sport where you have to you have to like experience a lot of failure. And I'm reading um, the biography, an autobiography of this baseball player called R. A. Dickey, um, and he's a guy who was oh, like right. he's he's like he's 42 now, and he's like he's a major league pitcher now. But he he was like in and out of the major leagues and like kept getting sent back down to the minor leagues and failing, and basically reinvented his pitching style. And I'm I'm fascinated by these stories of like constant failure. And people keep having to come back from it 
rather than just one one fiasco as well. It's like yeah, the the idea of failing and sticking around. It's like that Samuel um, is it Samuel Beckett the ever tried fail fail better you know fail again fail better that that famous quote. I think yeah, yeah Cameron yeah. Crowe was definitely kind of self-consciously applying a lot of that to this film and I really like that aspect of it like all of the the kind of themes and stuff came across really really well they were just the the romantic chemistry wasn't there for me but the yeah the the themes great top great job especially with the family stuff as well and maybe people like feeling like they failed to live up to what his family wanted as their immediate family or like they're failing to give him a proper burial or that kind of thing it was yeah from from that point of view um, it was still a very interesting and intriguing film to watch it explore that and there was a lot more depth to it I guess than some of Cameron Crowe's other work and to other films that you might compare it to like Garden State yeah for sure and and, and like I said I think that's where the the issues come in because I do agree with you that the the romantic side of the film is not as fully fleshed as the family side and as the and like the big themes of this movie are primarily plot wise on the family side um and i kind of wish and like i kind of i kind of hate myself for saying this because i do love the the relationship between between claire and orlando and uh and drew um in this movie um but i kind of wish that they'd made it less dramatic so that she just became a part of his life without the drama. It does have those kind of cliche scenes where she's not happy with what he said and she goes away and they don't speak a little bit and things like that. Um, and I kind of wish that perhaps they'd become a constant in each other's lives earlier on in the movie without that kind of tension of will they, won't they? Yeah. I was um, thinking about that in relation then, to Cloudburst, the, actually, because we didn't really talk about how that's a film that is in no way about the chase. It's about an established relationship mm. and about the romance of that. And those, I guess, are two very, very different categories of romantic film. And we haven't really explored that as much, but there's a lot to think about there. Yeah, for sure. Um, and 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 it's something where I think this kind of movie, I think it it needed... So Orlando Bloom gets left by the person that you're seeing at the beginning of the movie, played by Jessica Biel. Um, and it's kind of like a throwaway thing. It doesn't really make any difference apart from just to stick another knife into Orlando Bloom's life at that moment in time. Um, and you kind of think like, would it have been better if they'd met each other on the flight? He hadn't been dismissive. Then they'd got together had a quick fling but realized they like each other's company you lose all of that chase dynamic because they are they are becoming established in each other's lives in a way without drama which then allows the the family story all of those big powerful themes to stay at the fore of the film yeah that's an interesting way to think about it actually maybe if they just kind of their relationship took its took its course it I guess would have felt more conventional and less about trying to understand failure and failing as a person because I guess he's failing as a person in the way that he approaches her by being so kind of wooden and offhand and eventually he doesn't really he he doesn't really start to be good until it's handed to him on a plate in the form of her map 
that then mm. he drives around. Yeah, if it if it had gone that way, I guess it would have brought the family plot to the fore, and then it would be seen as a family drama. Who knows? Who knows? That's, that's yeah. a very interesting. And then and then they could still have those they could still have those themes of failure because then you've still got the failure of trying to control the family and trying to control the friends and the family back home. Um, you've, you'd still have those great scenes where like he realizes too Ooh. late that he doesn't want his father to be cremated. Yeah. And he turns up at Stop the, the cremation. and his dad's already in the air. Um, and, and yeah, so you'd still have all of those dynamics and like, and for a lot of it, Claire is there in this, in this role as a support. But in the back of your mind, you've still got that will they, won't they thing going on. Yeah. Which perhaps you don't need. Perhaps they can still explore those ideas of failure without talking about failure from a romantic perspective. Yeah, this is what I mean about saying that I think Cameron Crowe tried to do too much and didn't get there. But at the same mm. time, in saying that, you don't want to shit on someone's ambition and you don't want to say that they should have done something more boring. So, you know, fair play to him for trying. Yeah, and like I said, I, I kind of hate myself for saying that because I do love the the romantic side of this film. It's one of my favourite romances in movies. Yeah. I don't think I can I can express how much I actually really enjoy Elizabeth Town as a movie. But yeah, there are these issues with it. Yeah. That are interesting to talk about and in and it's in if you have watched it let us know what you think about it because it's one of those films which i think because of its flaws it makes it that much more interesting to discuss with people definitely yeah everyone's gonna have their own take on it and it's to do with i guess the way that everyone deals with and approaches failure i think which everyone processes very differently and that tied up in the way people what people want from romantic films as well is very very different yeah, it's a very, very interesting one to discuss and therefore a very, very interesting one to watch as well. I was definitely very, very mm. intrigued and had a lot of thoughts. It wasn't it wasn't mindless fluff. It wasn't like watching William and Kate the movie, for example. No, no, no. There's so much to talk about in an in a in a more intellectual manner. Yeah. Um I'll 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 look over the fact that we spent a lot of time at the beginning of this episode talking about Bake Off. <laughs> <laughs> we, we could edit that. Um, out. I, I do have no, no, no. I think it's integral to the to to, to Big Boys Don't Cry canon. Um, I do have one other thing I'd like to discuss. Yeah. Um, about this movie. Is there anything else that you've missed off your list? No, just when we were talking about the music, I forgot to mention the song Don't I Hold You by Wheat, which is played while he's driving oh, along yeah. in the dark. And that song like brings me near to tears every time. I don't know what it is about that song, but it really, really gets me. Um, and it makes me feel this kind of powerful sense of like desperation for life and it's just a really really great song something about the instrumentation and the the driving chords that are always moving up and never quite make it up to the major chord um but it's weirdly played like faster than it is on the record in the film but it works um yeah love love that song and a band who never really got big but definitely deserved to mm, yeah for sure i love that i don't really know any of their stuff apart from that song but i agree with you whenever whenever i'm watching this movie that's a real standout yeah, it's that and Father's Gun by Elton John are the two songs mm. in this movie that I'm like, oh golly, that's that's some good music right there. Yeah, um, but no, I think that was it for me. Um, yeah, and then I, after that, I, I the note after that I wrote down says, "Shame about you too, though." <laughs> 
Yeah. Oh, and I no, knew that was coming. I have one <laughs> one more thing. You could well, we, we can get onto you two in a moment, but um, yeah. My other whole thing is I have a theory, which is that the whole film was just a ruse for him to, for him to execute his cardboard bird on fire while a band rocks out on stage. Scene that you know, like when you have an idea, um, and it sits in your head for years and years and years. It's like an idea for a film or a book or a song or something that you never quite managed to execute in any of your creative projects. And it sits there and it stagnates and it sits around. And eventually you're like, how can I do this? How can I shoehorn this into something? You end up shoehorning it into something just to get it out of your head. Or that, or like it's the grand plan. <laughs> this film, I think, was just a ruse for him to do his his free bird, cardboard bird on fire while my morning jacket play on a stage. I think it was just a ruse for that. <laughs> And to be fair, he's executed it brilliantly. So well done, Cameron Crowe. Yeah, a hats off, ten out of ten for that. You you could have put an hour and fifty five minutes of Orlando Bloom sitting on the toilet and then cutting to my morning jacket playing this whilst a bird on fire falls from the ceiling and sets off the sprinklers. Um, and I would still give it a ten out of ten. Yeah, well done on that central concept you you say that like it's a joke but there is a youtube video called sitting on the toilet that has upwards of you know several million <laughs> views and it is literally i, just I know that video well yeah you know when, whenever toilet. i whenever i had the chance at university and since university if someone leaves me alone with their computer that becomes their homepage for all of their <laughs> internet browsers which i believe i did it to rob sherman once when we were doing uh the other podcast one hour stories he went away and uh yeah um which i'm surprised i've not done it to you uh, no you never me, got, you never me, got me with that one around your house yeah i've managed to avoid that <laughs> thankfully <laughs> Uh, it's even better in the days where people didn't quite understand how to do it either. Yeah. So you do that, and then people are like, "Oh my god, how do I change my homepage?" Um. Yeah. It's good times. Good times. Being Classic. being horrible to people for for laughter. Um. So yeah, you too. I knew when I was watching <laughs> this film, and you two came on, I was like, "Oh, Paddy's gonna hate that." <laughs> I just instantly. And I did. I didn't hate it as much as I thought I would, though. I thought I felt like it was sort of okay, and yeah, then Bono it... started singing, and I was like, oh, fuck off. But <laughs> I li- I've it... started to appreciate the Edge's guitar work a bit more, as you know. After all of my years of playing Edge-esque guitar in bands with you. Yeah. Started to make you warm to it. Yeah, but no, I think you could have found a better song for that scene. Yeah, well, I, th- I think like it fits in terms of uh, in terms of they're doing this road trip and it's a playlist. Um, and isn't that song about Martin Luther King? I, that is probably why it was chosen. Yes. Yeah, I think I think that's that's what it's about. Um, so yeah, so that's why it, it fits in well there. So thematically it works and it works in terms of like a road trip. I think if it had just been part of the general score in another part of the movie, or if they'd chosen a U2 song in another part of the film, yeah. Sunday bloody it Sunday. would have felt a little bit trite. <laughs> if they played Sunday bloody Sunday instead of Freebird. Yeah. Um, I, 
with the I, bird I just slowly making impressed. its way down on fire. Or just an effigy of Bono. Yeah, that, that wouldn't have been cool. No, no. Well done, well done, Cameron Crow, and avoiding on avoiding too much U two. Yeah. Right. So did Didn't you go overboard with the U two? Did you have more that you wanted to say? Yes. So I have um it's uh hold on, hold on. I need to I need to get my Radio Four voice on again. <laughs> oh yeah, um, yeah. Just, people so, are expecting that. Now so, that you did it last week, people are um people yeah, want that. It's like it's they, a thing, want... it's a feature. They they want more of my uh, my sultry radio four voice. You've got to give the fans um, what they want. Yeah. Uh, um. So uh, Rob is about to get is about to get personal and serious with the listeners. So please enjoy this little segue away from your usual humour. Um. So when I first watched Elizabeth Town, and this might explain why I have such a such a warm place in my heart for this movie. Um, I first watched it in my second year of university when I was going through an incredibly difficult time with suicidal depression. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd never heard of this movie before. Um, and I was very touchy about representations of suicide in media. And I still am. It's something that I I pick up on and I, I'm interested in, in terms of how does this represent ideas of depression and how does this represent ideas of suicide um in ways that i can interact with and ways that i understand it based on my own experiences um so one one example which and this is one of like um the most ridiculous thing that's ever happened to me um is you know the movie hook the uh, peter pan film Mm -hmm. with robin williams um there's a scene in that movie where uh where hook threatens to kill himself and it's played for laughs and it sounds really pathetic now, but at the time when I was going through a very troubled time uh, with my depression, I couldn't bear to watch it. And I had to leave the room and like had a little mini panic attack um, and and then return to watching it because I felt that it it represented the panic and the fear that depression and suicidal tendencies convey but without sort of tapping into the roots of what causes them. So it kind of just was like, it was just a mirror image back yeah, and it's it's um, trivializing it for whereas, cheap comedy. Yeah, and and I found that very very difficult. And like, it's one of those things. It's like, it's like, oh god, I got really emotionally upset by fucking Hook, the movie where that kid with the fake mohawk fights a forty year old Robin Williams, <laughs> <laughs> and like, um, and whereas like Elizabeth Town, this this movie starts with. I think one of the most effective representations of depression and suicide I've ever seen in a film because and this is something that I've always I've always thought is at its core depression is completely absurd and ridiculous. Yeah. Um depression is if you if you try and break down depression into just a single sentence to try and explain it to people what it is is it's your own brain trying to kill you yeah and like how ridiculous is that as a concept it's it's completely absurd and it's completely it's completely ridiculous um and i think that like one of the most memorable scenes apart from the 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 free bird scene at the end of the movie that people remember about this film is orlando bloom has lost his company one billion dollars um so he comes home he throws out all of his expensive stuff 
and then he makes this suicide machine um where he he gets this very expensive kitchen knife and he gaffer tapes it up to his exercise bike and then he works out that he can get a velocity up that will then stab him to death and like for me at least it perfectly encapsulated the ridiculous nature of suicidal depression in a way that i very rarely have seen in movies before a i think it does a great job of it and like i think it's a real testament to it that it made me laugh because i and it still makes me laugh every time i see it because i recognize it as an emotion that i have experienced and when it's something that you've been through and you've got out of the other side of you can understand the absurdity of what it is it's almost like a kind of slapstick comedy thing um and i i think it yeah i think elizabeth town that one scene does such a great job of conveying depression um that i could pretty much forgive it of anything um it could then turn into Orlando bloom sitting on the toilet for two hours and i think it, and i think it would be great um and um and yeah, so I think it I think it does a really good job of that. And it's always nice to see suicide and depression handled in a way that kind of cuts to the very core of it and that makes it humorous without the depression and without the suicide and without depressed people and without suicidal people becoming the butt of the joke. Um and like and 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 then there's like these odd little callbacks here and there. So like he's look, he's watching TV. And like an advert comes on for super sharp knives and it sort of piques his interest and stuff like that. Yeah. And it's kind of these these ideas and these memories that like I recognize very well. And you're like, oh, yeah, OK, yeah, I can see why they're doing this. And I think they did a really good job. Um, the one thing that but the movie does fall down in its representation of depression. Um, and I don't want to be nitpicky. I don't want to be that that PC culture guy or anything like that, because that's not really who i am i don't like to nitpick at things like that particularly when they've done such a good job overall but like there's kind of this idea in the movie that orlando bloom has found a cure for his suicidal tendencies by the end of the movie um so much so that they kind of phase out that idea about halfway through um so like the last time they kind of talk about it at all is when he says to claire um I want anything else other than to be here. And then after that, he kind of, it kind of never gets mentioned again, but it's like, that's not, if this person was genuinely considering killing himself, which he was at the beginning of the movie, just being able to succeed with this funeral or just finding love wouldn't be enough to stop those tendencies from happening. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think that served to continue that served to to vindicate my train of thought where i was thinking that his character didn't make a lot of sense or that i didn't quite believe his character is yeah that that aspect of it just seemed to dissipate and disappear as soon as as soon as he started to get deeper into his relationship with her so i think that as well contributes to people's people's dislike and people's buying into the idea of the manic pixie dream girl as this kind of um this you know airy solution to all of life's problems um through through this kind of romance with a kooky girl it's like oh yeah it can it can cure depression it's like well no actually that's not really how it works yeah 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 you don't you don't solve being depressed by by going out with someone 
you, you don't solve being depressed by by having one success during a traumatic time and you don't you don't solve it by going on this this journey as wonderful as it is and like you do have moments in your life when you are depressed where you do feel like you lose that disconnect that you have with everything else and you feel connected to other people again and i can understand why that's in there but at the end of the day like drew is not better because of what's happened over the course of this movie and i don't really feel like they address that properly no not Um, at all it's almost as if like it's like it's a very impactful opening scene but like if you want to actually address those kind of issues you need to give some kind of indication of he's got a resolution or there is no resolution yeah and again there's kind of like really really big theme themes to be dealing with on top of the idea the theme of you know failure and fiascos and whatever that's actually not necessarily the same thing as um as depression and i guess the depression and being suicidal was used in service of the exploration of that theme rather than it being about that so again there were a lot of kind of big things that he was dealing with where a lot of them were just in service of another one and didn't weren't necessarily explored in as much depth as they deserved to be on screen i guess but that one scene yeah, with the yeah. suicide I- machine is incredibly effective and it's a very, very memorable scene. And when I first started watching the film yesterday, I immediately thought, oh, yeah, that scene. I remember that scene. That's very, very effective because it is sort of lighthearted and it is funny. Like it genuinely does kind of make you laugh, but it's not like it's not in hook. It's not played for laughs. That's I think because he's not his depression and him being a depressed person is not the butt of the joke. But it is still it's still funny. And the, what's funny about it is the kind of the methodical technical nature of it, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And like it's it shows like and and like I said I wouldn't I wouldn't swap out that scene for anything in the world. I think it's one of the best scenes in the movie and it does something that movies and TV shows so rarely manage to do in terms of representing depression. So although there isn't that resolution at the end or any kind of resolution when it comes to talking about the subject of depression, I think it happens such a small amount of time that you get something that so cuttingly gets to the subject matter that people can relate to, that it deserves to be in this movie. And it deserves to be a scene that people remember fondly. Yeah. Um, but you do kind of think like, is, is it something that's, you know, quite been fully thought through before it went in? Yeah. Who, who knows? Who knows? Especially as it's relatively early on in the film. Maybe they thought it would make more sense than it did when it all came together. Because if you think about that in the same film as the the free bird, paper bird on fire scene. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like they, yeah, they really don't, they don't match up very well at all. Um, although they both, I mean, it does still work incredibly well as a movie and I, I will fight to the bitter death about, about this film. Um, but it is, it is a real hodgepodge of different ideas um all together in one thing but it's just yeah it's i, I thought it was worth a mention yeah and yeah sort of like coming at it from my very personal angle i thought it was you know worth talking about here because it's it's something that if there are any listeners who do sort of like look for representation of mental illness and stuff like that it's a scene that they might find interesting to look at yeah and it's very very interesting from that point of view and proves that obviously romantic films are oft dismissed but very very more than capable of handling 
such representations and doing them well and memorably and you know carrying big things carrying big weights yeah definitely don't don't overlook your romantic movies because you'll find some great stuff in there never emotional stuff <laughs> for sure cool so are you are you ready to give it a rating i am yeah what what do you want to what's our rating system going to be this week oh yeah that's a that's a tough one um you go with how many free birds <laughs> how how many bands down the poster for this festival is ruckus for you how far <laughs> down the poster are they yeah well, Ruck ruckus are headlining for me they're they're a band that can do no wrong <laughs> yeah no i think out of out of 20 bands they are the they are 13 bands down or 13 oh, bands 13 up, bands down should we say so they're seven from the top so 13 out of 20 so yeah so 6.5 6. out of 10 they, they'd 13, have the yeah 13 out of 20 they they'd have the 4 p.m slot yeah they? on the main stage 3 p.m 4 p.m the um at glastonbury in fact that's the the su yeah. sunday at glastonbury that's the dolly parton slot isn't it the uh the old school oh, right, the old school classic person slot so that's that's not a bad slot that's a decent slot yeah yeah uh for me uh i will be putting them 18 bands up on wow. on the festival i love this movie I, I don't care who knows. That's one of the that might be yeah. one of the highest scores you've ever awarded. Are you did you give Cloudburst an eighteen? Yeah, I gave it the same. Yeah, same as Cloudburst. So out wow, this this Which is I, on the same level me, as Cloudburst for you. It is. I love this movie. I love it, warts and all. I think it's great. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. So for me, this is ruckus for me. Out of twenty, um, they are the band that's on before Pendulum. <laughs> where none of the, the audience is there tent. to watch them they're, they're, they're just waiting for pendulum to come on and they're just milling around drinking and so ruckus are getting increasingly more annoyed until they <laughs> unleash the flaming uh flaming bird yeah and then everyone's like <laughs> da, 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 da. <laughs> pendulum free what bird, a ridiculous bird but at the same time, when they were when they were on, when you were out on a night out, you couldn't not dance to a bit of a bit of uh, propane nightmares, yeah, or uh, tarantula. There is what's there the was one something, that has there was like a jig I don't know what they're the doing. There's, um, oh God! Friend of the podcast, uh, Adam Molesky, when we were in Upper Sixth, he used to like he used to DJ at the parties and he would play that song and we'd all have a jig. It was great. Good times. So I associate it's, Pendulum with yeah, being like, around 18 years old. So that's it's good. Uh, when when Tarantula and Slam were big, that was like when we were 18, 19, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Pendulum were everywhere. And like I think everybody of our age saw Pendulum at some point or another because they played everywhere. They were at every festival. Yeah. I definitely saw them at Reading at some point. I was very, very drunk. And I remember it well. They were good. And, and you were there going, oh, 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 oh. Yep. Because <laughs> that's what British audiences do. Anything that's vaguely melodic, 
you can howl along to it like an ape. It's a great British at, tradition. At, at their heart, at their heart, every single British person just wants to be a backing singer in the Hounds of Love. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, we owe it all to Kate Bush. We do. Good times. God bless her. So it's my it's my choice next. I've been it thinking, is, yeah. been thinking long and hard, and I think it's a, it's high time that we watch the Notebook. Ah, oh, the Notebook. All right. Have you ever I'm, seen it? I'm on board. I have. Yes. I yeah, have never. I have never seen it. Oh wow! Okay. So, this makes it doubly exciting. Yeah, obviously it's it's an incredibly famous romantic film. Ryan Gosling's in it. Love him. In fact, I think he he could have done the role in Elizabeth Town. Maybe. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, maybe he could. I'm not sure whether he would have necessarily been interested. Yeah, because the Notebook came out what one year, two years before. So around, around yeah, yeah, a few couple of years before that. So yeah, he's already very big, and also. He'd have, he'd have walked into the um the like family gathering where everyone's complaining about funeral stuff, and he'd have been like, "You're a baby, you're a baby," just to everyone, <laughs> and that would have been the end of the film. Calling Paula Dean a baby. Yeah. So yeah, the Notebook. <laughs> That's my choice. Cool. We want to do a big, wait, big crowd pleasing fan favorite film, The Notebook. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Um, I'm I'm on board. Excited. All right. Well, we've been talking for a while, so we better go. But if you have anything you want to say to us, get in touch. Email us at bigboysdon'tcrypodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us at bigboysdon'tpod. What did you think of Elizabeth Town? Do you agree with all the rubbish that we've said? Is Rob wrong? Am I wrong? <laughs> Who knows? Let us know. Yeah, please do. Uh, don't send too much hate my way. I know that most people don't like this movie, but yeah, no, know, don't, if you don't, don't be like hating. It, you're wrong, and I hate you. This is this is no place for haters. Don't be hating. <laughs> don't don't hate the player. Hate the movie. <laughs> don't hate the podcast. Hate the film. <laughs> That's your life rule. I'm gonna get that on a t-shirt. With Guy Fieri's face. <laughs> yep. That'll be the best t-shirt I've ever seen. <laughs> I'm not saying this is the best t-shirt I've ever worn, but this is the best t-shirt I've ever worn. <laughs> oh, good times. All right. We will be in your ears this time next week talking about The Notebook. Alrighty. Alright. Bye. Bye. Bye.